It became an Olympic city when he headed up its tourism bureau. Coming up, Rick Antonson tells us how Vancouver, B.C. still benefits as an international destination. Tourism is about the financial, ecological, social, and cultural benefits that come to a community by having visitors from around the world spend time with them. And then there's Buffalo. David Seminar's hometown has spiffed up a lot lately, but they haven't forgotten their special way of warming up at a tailgate party. You can line up and get a free shot of this horrible, really strong Polish liqueur, and you drink it out of an old bowling ball. And take a closer look at Bosnia to see how they continue to recover from the deadly conflicts of the 1990s. You can also expect to have some fun. So if you like skiing, you would go to Sarajevo. If you like summer vacation, you would go to Mostar. If you like good food, you would go to both. It's Vancouver, B.C., Buffalo, and Bosnia in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. Even if you can only travel with your imagination this summer, we think you'll enjoy crossing borders with us on today's Travel with Rick Steves. In just a second, we'll get an insider's look at how its popularity in tourism defines Canada's west coast metropolis of Vancouver, B.C., a city that boasts the world's longest uninterrupted waterfront trails. Further down the U.S.-Canada border, we'll hear how they're breathing new life into Buffalo, New York as an easy-to-enjoy destination instead of a punchline. And for off-the-radar travel, we'll hear how Bosnia is a diamond in the rough that just might win you over. It's often called one of the most beautiful cities in North America. For 21 years, Rick Antonson was the president and CEO of the tourism authority that promotes Vancouver, British Columbia to the rest of the world. During Rick's tenure, the city successfully bid to host the Winter Olympics. The city has grown into a top-shelf destination that attracts tourists and residents from around the world. Vancouver is prized for its natural beauty and recreational opportunities. Rick Antonson joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to share some of the lessons he learned as an international tourism promoter. Rick, thanks for being here. It's nice to be here. You know, every time I meet a tourism director for a godforsaken, depressing city, I won't say which ones, I just think, what a shame. And then when I meet a tourism director for a place like... uh, Vancouver, I think you got a good gig. What is a nice city to be the tourism promoter for? Well, it's terrific to be able to invite the world to come and visit your hometown. And when it's a beautiful place like Vancouver in Canada, it's all the nicer. But it brings with it the complexities because it's you want people to come, you want them to enjoy things, you want them to extend their length of stay, you want them to feel the things that you feel, and you want them to meet the locals. But you know that what they want to come and see is, that's the mountains, and there's the ocean. I I could touch both of them right now in the next half hour. It's a pretty special place. But you were running the show for 20 years there, and um, essentially you're hired to wring money out of people who come to town for the economy, not to help people have quality experiences. I mean, how do you balance that? Did you ever get in trouble because you have some ideals? I was constantly in trouble because one would have to remind the hotel community that people don't leave home to go stay in a hotel room. They leave to go and have an experience. And to many in the tourism businesses, it's about a cash register ring. And that is but one element. And we pushed, we had it in our mission statement, that tourism is about the financial, ecological, social and cultural benefits that come to a community by having visitors from around the world spend time with them. So it's four-pronged. Only one of them relates to the dollar. If we don't travel, we don't have empathy for the rest of the world. Here in the United States, we're 4% of the planet, and 
there are actually people in our country that think we're exceptional. And you can't think that when you travel. You just can't think that if you travel smartly. And tourism can help with that empathy or it can actually hurt with that empathy. And I'm glad that there are people in tourism that can speak up for the the real transformational value of travel. Sadly, when I go to a tourism convention and I meet somebody from a developing country like, say, Egypt, they're all about sending people to a resort and a golf course and uh, you know something where you jet in and you have this utopia. And conceivably, you would never even meet a real person. You'd meet only this you know, fancy version. Right. And when you do get the real people and the real food and the real occasions, it's uplifting. It's spiritually uplifting. It's environmentally uplifting. And it, it works. So I, I like your tact in that there are challenges around global warming and around the, the footprint of, of travelers. But there are solutions that can be brought. So there are offsets that can be brought. We used to offer convention organizers offsets for um, their delegates that were coming for the air, uh, air flight damage. Right. But, you know, you talked earlier about a conference. It's actually Lou Demore who heads Louis up. Lou Demore, that was him. Yeah, he heads up the International Institute for Peace Through Tourism. Yeah. And every time I talk about tourism as a powerful force for peace, yeah. I attribute it to, to Lou Demore. But there was also... Indian cabinet minister that I heard once at a conference for the Pacific Asia Travel Association when we were in in uh, New Delhi, and he addressed the group, and he said something else that I will never forget. He said, tourism sits on the right hand of peace. Oh, I love that. Isn't yeah. it wonderful? It Powerful. is. It is. We've got so much in common, and there's so much fear, and the fear really is strongest with people who don't get out. And when you get out, you realize, hey, we're all in this together. Rick Antonsen is sharing what he's observed about how tourism can change a city's fortune right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He headed Tourism Vancouver from 1993 until 2014, and he served on the board of the Pacific Asia Travel Association in Bangkok. Rick's also written several books about British Columbia, plus travel memoirs about his adventures, including Walking with Ghosts in Papua New Guinea and Route 66 Still Kicks. His website is rickantonson.com. Rick, when we think about challenges to a great city, a city like Vancouver, a city like Barcelona, a city like Amsterdam, is going to be dealing with the realities of over-tourism. Can you get too many people, or are there going to be elements in your city that just says, batten down the hatches, uh, deal with the congestion, let's just uh, milk it for all we can because it creates jobs and it generates revenue for our town? It's an interesting thing. I would think if somebody blows the whistle on over-tourism, you'll have a vested interest saying, shut up and let the people come. There will always be those that want to wrap their hands around the pennies and count them at the end of the day. But they're not doing the travel industry any favors. Those who say, we have to be careful. There can be too much of a good thing. Travel has so many blessings that it brings to a community, the community development, the neighbors, everybody can benefit from. But if it gets out of hand, mark my words, it won't be the industry that comes up with solutions. It will be elected officials Mm. who hear the hue and cry. Barcelona is a really good example Mm -hmm. where people are saying, wait a sec, I don't want Airbnb in my neighborhood. So the the short-sighted greed of the local tourist industry would be trumped by the local government when the populace just cries out. I can no longer get in my favorite restaurant because it's overrun by tourists, or I'm behind these buses. I don't know if they're going to the convention center with delegates or if they're going to the cruise ships, but they're all congestion. I don't like it anymore. 
yeah, the Romblas has no more local people living there because of Airbnb. Exactly. I, I can't feed the birds in Stanley Park because there's all these tour buses from the cruise ship, you know. And they're That's idling, the and yeah. people don't like that. Tourism can go from good to bad. It may not go to ugly, but around the world it has in certain places mm-hmm. gone from good to oh, bad yeah. to downright ugly. We need to find answers before other people start to give politically expedient answers because they won't be good for the community that tourism can serve and benefit. Rick, I think one of the great events of of your career in Vancouver must have been winning the Olympics. Why did you guys go for the Olympics? And in retrospect now, you know, years later, what, 10 years later, was it a good investment? It was an extraordinarily beneficial event in all that it brought in the aftermath. It's important to put it in the context that the first bid to bring the Olympics to Whistler area That happened in the 1960s. And when it wasn't successful, there was a 1970s second bid that built on that. So when we were part of launching the bid for the 2010 games, it was the third time. And many of the early visionaries were not alive when it finally happened in 2010. But they were like people who build cathedrals. You start putting the cornerstone in, you know you're not going to live to see it actually happen in the end. But looking back at it today, is there infrastructure that, that you wouldn't have had that you had because of the push of the Olympics? One of the things that having the Olympics coming in 2010 meant is it forced public policy decisions that politicians had been pushing aside for the longest time. So the road between Vancouver and Whistler got done. It gives people this, cover, doesn't it, to it get does. this done? It's expensive, but we got the whole world looking at us. Exactly. And now and 10 years later, hey. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to invite them to a construction site, so right. we're going to finish the rapid transit. Very important. Let's talk also about cruise industry, because uh, it's a big deal in Seattle. Every, every weekend I look out from my little perch here, and I see the cruise ships going up to Alaska from Seattle. I know there's some competition between Seattle and Vancouver. What are the issues that a city deals with when they want to embrace the cruise industry? It's, it's like dangling you know, candy in front of you, I would think. Uh, how did you deal with that? So there are two elements around it. One is that for Vancouverites, and for people in Seattle, the cruise ships are sort of floating icons. Or they're, you can kind of boast about them and see them going away. And they're, they're beautiful when they're going into the sunset with the tide. And, and all of that is, is very good. The downdraft of it is that quite often people who come to get on a cruise ship arrive the day of departure. And what a destination, a Seattle, a Vancouver, many other places around the world, really wants is those people to sample where they're departing from or where they come back and arrive after the cruise. So that's exciting. It's really challenging to try and get the the cruise ship companies to jointly market to make that pre and post trip there. But one of the best things about Vancouver or Seattle is our backyards. It's it's the state of Washington. It's the, the province of British Columbia. And you want people who are coming on a cruise to be able to get out and see the rest of what you've got. You're out of the business now, so you can talk probably more candidly than you could before. How aggressive are the cruise lines when it comes to negotiating with a small town with a fragile economy by saying, we can, we can put you on easy street if we work you into our itineraries, but you have to do it on these conditions? Well, you know, tourism marketers, and in some cases it's been cruise companies, have trinketized entire little communities, and they've brought an, an abundance of people and money And then they kind of leave when the season's over and the town kind of tries to regroup and find its values all over again. So I think what has happened in more contemporary times is that places in Alaska have said, 
it's not just about the money you're offering. This is about what happens to our environment. So cruise companies have now tapped into shore-based power instead of belching while they're in port. That's been forced upon them by the environmentalists. It wasn't the cruise companies that said, hey, here would be a good idea after 40 years of doing bad. Let's change and use ship-to-shore So they had power some leverage. Plugins. These small town communities had leverage with they the did. cruise ships. They did. Alaska got very aggressive. They, they mm-hmm. passed more taxes coming in for the, the cruise companies. They tried to ban cruise companies from being Because I've, I've heard some towns in Alaska just said, we don't want this. Exactly. It's just not for us. Don't yep. stop here. Yep. If those are your conditions, we'll just make it with other things. And if you've moved to Alaska, you move there because you want to be in Alaska. You don't want to sell trinkets to a bunch exactly. of people waltzing in for six hours. Exactly. Rick Antonson, thank you so much for joining us and giving us an insight both into Vancouver and tourism. Happy travels. Thank you. Safe passage on your journey. Rick Antonson explains how British Columbians honor the indigenous heritage of the land they inhabit as an extra to today's show. You can hear it at ricksteves.com slash radio. We're at 877-333-7425 or by email or at radio at ricksteves.com. Up next, we hop over the border to Buffalo and then we're off to Bosnia in just a bit on Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves here. I love travel. In fact, my life's work has been to help people like you feel empowered to explore the world. As the coronavirus puts countless trips on hold, I think it's more important than ever that we keep on learning about the world. Let's use the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves to inspire us for our next great adventures. Adventures we'll enjoy when we're able to travel again. Dave Seminara writes about his travels far and wide, and he also writes about his hometown, a place not on very many travelers' bucket lists, Buffalo, New York. But Buffalo's been spiffing up lately, and Dave makes a good case that it's worth a look. He certainly won't have many tourist crowds to fight, Dave joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves for a traveler's look at the city he calls the best maligned place, Buffalo, New York. Dave, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me back, Rick. Reading your uh, chapter in your book, um, Breakfast with Polygamists, uh, about Buffalo, I didn't realize that one time Buffalo was the ninth biggest city in the United States. It was back in 1900, and the population has been declining ever since. However, the city is getting better and better. I mean, I haven't lived there in 30 years. I'm 47, and I left there uh, when I went away to college. But my parents still live there, and I go back every year. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's a more and more interesting city, and it's a it's a more livable place. And yet, the population has declined like many uh, sort of northern cold-weather cities. People are moving down south. So it was an important industrial-age city, and uh, in 1900 it peaked, and it's got some great architecture from that day. If you walk around Buffalo today you're going to enjoy some architecture that harkens back to the time when it was a leading American city. Yeah, you absolutely will. Like, for example, Delaware Avenue is one of the principal thoroughfares in Buffalo, and I actually went to a high school on Delaware Avenue called Canisius High School, which is part of what was once called Millionaire's Row because there was supposedly more millionaires living on Delaware Avenue in Buffalo around the turn of the 20th century than any place else in the country. And it's it's very architecturally rich. I mean, there's some just incredible mansions all along Delaware Avenue, there's another historic neighborhood called Allentown, which was filled with all kinds of cute sort of Victorian homes and other architectural styles. You've got a few very notable Frank Lloyd Wright buildings in Buffalo. 
there's an, we have an incredible Art Deco City Hall, which is built amazingly during the Great Depression, but they somehow managed to spend a tremendous amount of money on this and incredible care with beautiful mosaics. And you can go to the top of uh, City Hall. There's a free observatory where you can get an amazing overview of the city from up there. That sounds like the sort of the first thing you do, go up that 32-story Art Deco Tower and enjoy the 360-degree view. Also, you've got um, sort of remnants of the old industrial age, plus, you know, grain silos. I understand you can, they've turned some of those grain silos into actual, you know, amusement zones where you can turn a grain silo into a climbing wall. And that's right. Yeah, and um, this is an area of the city called Silo City, and it's just really sort of south of the downtown. And it was really like a, a bleak tableau of unused grain silos that were sort of a blight on the landscape. And they had the idea to sort of repurpose this area and turn it into sort of an entertainment complex. And now you can go down there. Uh, there's a walking path uh, along the river. You can actually, there's a couple of brew pubs down there, which are really fun to go to. There's ice skating. There's like a little hockey rink where you can play some hockey in that area. And yeah, I haven't actually ever been brave enough to do it, Rick. But during the summer, you can't do it during the winter and in a wind on a windy day. But you can actually scale the silos, the huge, tall grain silos. Yeah. Well, that's um, just, it's a good example of how uh, sometimes we write off a city because a generation ago it was considered sort of um, past its prime or whatever, but a lot of industrial towns are coming back into their own and deserve a second look. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dave Seminara, and Dave's written a compilation of travel essays in his book called Breakfast with Polygamist, and it includes a few entries on Buffalo and the Niagara Falls region. Dave's website is daveseminara.com. Dave Buffalo, small as it is compared to other famous cities, is famous for a few things. There's beef on weck. What is that? Beef on weck is essentially like a sort of like a roast beef sandwich, but it's better. One thing, first of all, the weck means it's a kimwick roll. So the, they have kimwick seeds on them, which are sort of like um, it's not really very spicy, but it, there's a certain texture to them. They're salty. And there's a sort of a nice little bite to them. It's our signature sandwich in the city. And Buffalo's in an area where you have a, a very um, unusual um, weather kind of condition, the lake effect snow. Tell us what that is. Yeah, lake effect snow means that there's a, there's a snow belt that's just south of the city. First of all, we've got good skiing also about an hour or so south of Buffalo. And um, down in the snow belt, you know, you can you can very find these very narrow bands of lake effect snow where you can have, uh, you know, at my mom's house, she lives in a town called Williamsville, which is east of the city. She could be on a day and have absolutely no snow whatsoever. And a 10 minute drive south of her, they could have a foot of snow while hmm. she sees grass outside. So it's it's quite an unusual area for that. Now, when we think of Buffalo, I mean, people think of the Buffalo Bills. Is there a fun way to kind of connect with the sports energy of the city? There is, you know, and I'll say too, just one thing, I, overarching thing I want to remember to say about Buffalo is that, you know, the, sort of the conflict of this place of me talking about it, because, you know, for, for many, many years, we were, we were basically seen as, you know, Johnny Carson, when I was a kid, called Buffalo the armpit of the East. And the place had a really bad image, and now it's getting a lot better press, and I'd be a little conflicted about it, because on the one hand, I want Buffalo to get some respect, and on the other, I sort of feel like I don't know if I want the secret to get out of the bag. But for those who are coming to Buffalo, I wouldn't just go from one uh, sort of sightseeing destination to the next. I would really try to meet some local people because Buffalonians are really friendly people. And I think the coolest place to meet people from Buffalo is at a Bills game, especially at a tailgate. So, David, Sunday morning, everybody's getting together at the stadium. What are you going to do when you're tailgating at a Bills game? 
Well, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of drinking that goes on. There's no way to soft pedal that. I mean, look, the Bills are a religion in Buffalo, and it's the one common bond that we all have, even those of us who no longer live in Buffalo. We force our kids to become Bills fans. My sons have never lived in Buffalo, and we stick them with this very frustrating sporting allegiance. So it's the one thing that bonds us. If I'm walking in an airport, I could be in Tokyo or God knows where. I see someone with a Bills hat on. I go over and I high five them and I talk to them and I meet them. So it's it's really it's like a cult. It's like a religion, and it's a very frustrating team to root for. But we pass it on to our children, I guess, because we're just really cruel people. So my sons have suffered with being Bills fans and. You know, the place where we commune on Sunday mornings is, is the vast parking lots outside of outside of Bill's games. And the tailgating, there's a tremendous amount of drinking that goes on for sure. The, the the drunkest fans are known for something called table smashing where they where they get up on top of their cars or on top of vans and they jump sort of like World Wrestling Federation style onto like plastic tables and break them. Um, you Google that, you'll find all kinds of videos of it. Um, that I don't... sounds manic. I just that's yeah. amazing. So that's how you show your your passion for your football team. <laughs> <laughs> Jump off the car and you crush the table with all the food, all the <laughs> chips and the dip and the beer. No, 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 no. You, you, you move the food off of the table <laughs> oh, first, Rick. Oh, that's a key. Oh, that's no, Buffalonians, we don't waste no, no, food. No. <laughs> we don't waste beer and we don't waste food, Rick. Let's get that straight. Okay. But there's a very famous one. I've never been to it, but there's a there's a tailgate called Pinto Ron's, and Pinto Ron is famous because you can line up and get a free shot of this horrible, really strong Polish liqueur, and you drink it out of a bowling ball, out of an old bowling ball. He also serves pizza to people that he bakes in a file cabinet, and he does a stir-fry inside of a, a homemade wok, which is actually an old hubcap. And he squirts um, ketchup and mustard all over himself, or he has somebody else do it before. That's the ritual of every game, the ketchup and mustard squirting. Wait a minute. So as you can tell, it's total debauchery. It's chaos. And I, I, I got to go back to the first thing. You're drinking yes. some Polish fire water out of a bowling ball. You mean the the, the hole you stick your finger in? when? You, Correct. You, Correct. <laughs> you is, drink out of that. That is the grossest. And people line up, Rick, for this. People line up. Th- there could be a line of 50, 60 people waiting to drink from the bowling ball. It's a ritual. I'm going back to that grain silo, and I'm just going to harness up and climate, I think. That sounds a little more (laughs) sane to me. We're getting a good swig of Buffalo hometown pride with travel writer Dave Seminar right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You often see his byline in travel publications, and his latest book of travel tales is called Breakfast with Polygamists. There's more on his website at daveseminara.com. Ed's listening in from about an hour north of Buffalo in Burlington, Ontario. Hey, Ed. Hi. I, this is a subject near and dear to my heart. I, I'm uh, Even though I live in Canada, I love Buffalo. I love the Sabres. I love the Bills. And I love eating in Buffalo. And I'd like to know what uh, Dave's favorite place for chicken wings is. So these are Buffalo it's hot good, wings, right? The Buffalo hot wings, yeah. yeah. Right. It's a good question. You know, Anchor Bar is the place where, is the famous place where they were invented in the late 60s. A lot of people are partial to Gabriel's Gate, which I think is it's in uh, Allentown, has the largest wings. I really like a place called Duff's, and Duff's is a chain. You probably are familiar with it. Yes. And it's, I believe even in Canada they have Duff's. But I don't know. I, I used to go to Duff's. Okay, I should say that the bars close at 4 o'clock at 4 a.m. in Buffalo. So yes. when, when I was young and growing up there, when we come back from college, we would go out until 4 o'clock in the morning. And then Duff's was usually open until 5 or 6. You could go to Duff's, and Duff's has wings that they call suicidal, which are the absolute you know hottest you could get. Yes. And sort of a rite of passage growing up in Buffalo would be to go after all the bars closed to Duff's and to 
torture yourself with suicidal wings. And so I don't, I don't know if Duff's is the best wing place, but for me, it holds the most memories, so I'm partial to Duff's. Hey, Ed, where's I, your favorite place for wings? It, it is the Washington Square. It is right across from the ballpark. It's within walking distance of the hockey arena. And uh, you have to eat them when they're right hot and crispy. And I think they're the most consistent and best wings in Buffalo. I've been to Duff's. I've been to all the places. And to me, that is my favorite place. And what's the name again? The Washington Square. It is is the corner of uh, Swan and Washington Street. It is uh, it is Kitty Corner to uh, what used to be Pilot Field, the baseball park, Coca-Cola Field, I think it's called now. And it's within walking distance of the uh, the hockey arena in Buffalo. Would they be open Sunday morning so I can uh, have some nice no, things? No, unfortunately, they're not. <laughs> yeah, they're open. They're open during the day, always for lunch and evenings, uh, nights of hockey and baseball games oh, in the okay. evenings. But uh, I think it's first class. I love the place. <laughs> Ed, thanks so much for your call. Thank you. All right. And Carolyn's emailing us from uh, Markham, Ontario, and she writes, I just love that the city of Buffalo is cleaned up, and it's a bustling metropolis now with beautiful parks and walkways. The best time to go is in the summer, plus the shopping malls. Thanks, Carolyn, for your email. And, and that reminds me, Dave, to ask you about, I was reading about the West Side Bazaar. It sounds like a, a wonderful, positive way to incorporate the immigrant and refugee population into the city. It is, and it's an incredible place to have a cheap lunch, I have to tell you. It's really a sort of little model UN. There are people there from you know, many different countries. There's a, there's a large population of uh, refugees in Buffalo, and you could have uh, Burmese food there, uh, Vietnamese, Thai, Indian, Pakistani, uh, Chinese. Uh, there's, a, there's a number of different food stalls there, and it's very cheap. You can eat for 3 4 or $5, and it's sort of, it's almost like dim sum style where you go to one uh. place. I went to probably five different places the last time I was there, and there's also a few stalls where there are little entrepreneurs um, from different countries selling dresses or trinkets from their countries. Very cool little place, and I should say that it's in the neighborhood uh, my mom grew up in, which is the west side of Buffalo. So this is called the West Side Bazaar. So, and, and Buffalo in general, uh, formerly industrial power, then it, it hit a, a low point for several generations, now coming back with a vengeance. It's uh, experiencing clearly experiencing a renaissance. The waterfront along Lake Erie is, is becoming more uh, welcoming and pedestrian-friendly. It sounds like you can uh, enjoy that, and uh, it's, it's actually a foodie haven. It is. And of course, also, when you come to Buffalo, no one's going to come to Buffalo without also visiting Niagara Falls while you're there because the two cities are right next door to each other. And Mm -hmm. my dad's from Niagara Falls. My mom is from Buffalo. So I know both of them really well. I go back there every year. And, you know, Niagara Falls is also another place, even though it's one of the wonders of the natural world, it doesn't get a lot of respect, especially from travel writers, because what happens is people go to Niagara Falls and they go to Clifton Hill, which is on the Canadian side. And it's a really, it's a street full of tourist traps, like little um, arcades and parlors and wax museums. And and it's easy to just go there and think, oh man, this place is a tourist trap. But there's all kinds of hidden little things that people don't know about. It sounds like uh, that Canadian side has uh, biking trails and uh, wine mm -hmm. tasting and so on. There's all kinds of stuff. I mean, for example, there's the Niagara Glen Park, which is on the Canadian side. Mm And this is just a beautiful park with four or five miles of hiking trails where you can hear the rapids. Mm. And you can sort of feel the power of the Niagara Falls without actually being there. And it's the trees and the rock formations there are absolutely beautiful. And I would say probably 95% of the tourists who visit Niagara Falls don't actually know about Niagara Glen Park, for example. There's also, as you mentioned, there's the Niagara River Recreation Trail, which is an incredible secret. Uh, you can ride your bike right by Niagara Falls. You can ride all along the rapids and hear the, you know, the power and the thunder of the of the water. 
and people don't even know about it. You can ride all the way from Niagara on the lake, which is a very quaint, cute place with a lot of uh, wineries and a lot of historic old homes that's right on Lake Ontario. You can ride from Niagara on the lake all the way to uh, Niagara Falls and then even continue if you want to for like a three-hour ride all the way to Fort Erie, all along the waterfront. Most of it is along the waterfront, and it's really not well-known at all. And Dave, you write about a site that would complement the Niagara Falls side trip from Buffalo in the other direction Mm -hmm. to the south, uh, a little bit of Amish country. Yeah, and this is another absolutely hidden gem in the western New York region. This is Cattaraugus County. You've got quite a few, I couldn't tell you the exact number, but lots of Amish people living in Cattaraugus County. And they produce incredible, aside from their furniture, which I'm less interested in, is amazing baked goods that they have. I mean, if you want great donuts, we were talking about beef on weck before and wings. Now you're ready for dessert. Hmm. Amish country. <laughs> and um, Cattaraugus County, little towns like Conowango in South Dayton, these little stands they have, and a lot of times they're not even manned. Sometimes they're there and sometimes they're not. It's an honor system. You go in, they have donuts that are like bigger than your head, and they're so cheap and they're delicious. Wow. This is, to me, an amazing sort of eye-opener about a, a city most tourists wouldn't give a second thought to. And you could go there and make Buffalo your, your home base. You could get into the local culture. You could enjoy the food. You could enjoy the diversity. You could enjoy its heritage. And you could enjoy side trips, do some of the uh, obvious uh, bucket list uh, activities, um, Niagara Falls, and check out Amish culture. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been joined by Dave Seminara. His book is Breakfast with Polygamists. And Dave, do you have one last thought to, to wrap up this whole discussion about that might be helpful for anybody visiting Buffalo? Yes, I mean, since we were just talking about the Amish, I'll just quickly mention one of the stories in the book. The story is called Conned by the Amish. And, you know, I love this Amish country. I've been going there for many years. It's a fun place to shop and to buy things. And I had bought a number of rugs uh, from a particular Amish family that I really like there. And one day we were there. We were in their little workshop, and they were not there. It was sort of just us and all of their rugs. And a FedEx truck pulled up in front and unloaded all of these big, heavy, um, sort of long boxes. And they said, made in China on them. And we were sitting there. The FedEx guy was there, and it was just us and the FedEx guy and the shed. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I've been completely scammed. These rugs that we've been buying from these people all these years are actually made in China. So I asked the guy, of course, I wasn't going to open the boxes, but I said, are those rugs in there? He said, I don't know. He picked it up. He said, well, they sure feel like they do. You know, I decided the, the Amish people weren't there at that time. I actually sent them a letter. And um, the story that I wrote about details um, my correspondence with these people about whether their rugs were or were not, in fact, made in China. And what was the what was the verdict? The verdict was that they were absolutely not made in China. This was actually just some fabric that they had for the backings of some of their quilts. But oh. the wonderful thing was exchanging homemade letter, uh, handwritten letters with this family from the Amish country and them saying that they said that they thought it was the funniest thing they received my letter. The guy said, my wife and I have never laughed so hard, you thinking that our rugs were made in China, and so on and so forth. I love and it. And it really underscored for me the authenticity of the whole experience, and it restored my faith that the Amish are honest people. They're not just selling made-in-China rugs. Dave Seminar, I love your openness and your passion for travel. I love the way that you share your experiences in the books that you write, and uh, congratulations on your latest book, Breakfast with Polygamists. Thank you, Rick. Let's talk again sometime soon.
Dave Seminar tells us about his exploits and discoveries in such far-flung places as Liechtenstein, the Basque Country, and even remote islands of Indonesia. You can listen to his earlier appearances in the Travel with Rick Steves archives at ricksteves.com radio. Up next, we convene a special panel of experts on Bosnia to tell us what you can expect off the beaten track in their corner of the Balkans. The Adriatic resorts of Croatia have made the top ten list for many travelers in recent years. But just next door, the country of Bosnia-Herzegovina barely gets noticed. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're about to change that as we head inland to explore a real backdoor destination with plenty of stories to tell, at a fraction of the cost of the trendy coast. Our guides are American Ben Curtis. He's a geopolitics instructor whose specialty is Southeast Europe. Sanel Maric is a teacher and tour guide who grew up near historic Mostar, where he now lives, and journalist and tour guide Amir Telebacirovic. Thanks in advance for helping with that. Amir comes to us from Bosnia's capital, Sarajevo, which the world got to know during the 1984 Winter Olympics and the bloody war that broke out eight years later. But there's been a whole generation to heal since then, and there's been a lot worth exploring in this hidden corner of the Balkans. Amir, when you think of the name of the country, Bosnia and Herzegovina, why is that? (laughs) Welcome to the club. People are asking the same question. It's enough just to say Bosnia. So when you say, for example, the United States of America, many people around the world wouldn't bother saying the entire official name. They just say America. So in the case of Bosnia, you don't need to say Bosnia and Herzegovina, although it's official name. But there's yeah, a place called Herzegovina, isn't yes. there? Would the people in Herzegovina say the same yes, thing? Yes, that's where the Sanal lives. And uh, But uh, it's not like two countries being pulled together. It's okay. still one country. There is no boundary between what is Bosnia and what is Herzegovina. It's still one country except in climate. Hmm. So more continental climate where I live, which is Bosnia, okay. northern side, and more Mediterranean climate where Sanal lives. And it's only two hours in between. Wow. So we can just say so, Bosnia for this area. Yeah. Ben Curtis, uh, there's a, a complicated mix of ethnicities and religions. Give us just the the context here as simply as you can to understand why would people be fighting and, and what heritage did they inherit here and what is the ethnic and religious lay of the land in mm-hmm. Bosnia? Right. So uh, some of the things that make Bosnia so fascinating is it's just a little bit different from what you would think of as most European history in that there's this medieval Bosnian state but it had a different minority Christian sect that wasn't really like that in most anywhere else in Europe. And then you have the Ottoman Turks uh, invading in the 15th century primarily. And so then the Ottomans rule this bit of southeastern Europe for 400 plus years until at the end of the 1800s you come and have the Habsburgs come in and start to modernize things. But because of this different states, different people ruling it, uh, and the people who are living there, you have a fascinating mixture of religions that doesn't exist quite anywhere else, and that's Muslims, it's Orthodox Christians, who are identified typically as Serbian people, and uh, Catholics Christians, who identify typically as Croats, and they all live there right together, and for much of the history have gotten along, but occasionally there's some sparks, and uh, things are not quite so peaceful. This is where East meets West, literally. Literally, yeah, exactly, and sometimes people see that as maybe a flashpoint, but also it's one of the things that makes Bosnia so fascinating is it is where East meets West. It's where you have these cultures rubbing right up against each other. Because you have that wonderful mix. It it shows itself in the music. It shows itself in the cuisine. It it shows itself in the architecture. You know, if I put it very simplistically, if you think of Serbs, Croats, and Bosniaks, Bosniaks, Mm -hmm. basically the blood of the people, the ethnicity is essentially the same, but one has a Muslim heritage, one has a 
Orthodox Christian heritage and the other has a Catholic heritage. Is that fair to say? Exactly. And the, the language they speak is all almost identical. <laughs> and they, one group would call it Slovak and, or, or, or Bosnia, I mean, Bosnia, yeah, Bosnian and, versus Serbian versus okay. Croatian. Yeah. And then there was so much fighting in Bosnia, in part because there were not tiny minorities, but there were big minorities. They're too easy just to sweep away. Yeah. I mean, and they were intermixed. And, you know, without going too deep into the the atrocities of the 1990s, you had these terrible political leaders who wanted to separate people who'd gotten along for decades and centuries for pretty nefarious political ends, but they sparked fighting and they sparked this mm-hmm. kind of neighbor-to-neighbor conflict. And without bogging down on that today, it's quite remarkable how things are coming together and there's a lightness and an energy and a, and a, and a focus on the future and the, the children of these combatants are, I'd say, doing pretty well. I mean, there's definitely some challenges, right? right. You know, uh, Bosnia... Uh, has some political hurdles to leap and interestingly some lessons for the rest of the world on that one but there's a lot of people working to make things better and uh sano sarajevo is a a city that american students of history know because of 1914 and the assassination of archduke ferdinand that kicked off world war one but what's sarajevo feel like today well uh i would say a lot of times you hear it as uh, european jerusalem there is this blend of cultures that kind of created a unique atmosphere when you go there. Just walking the streets, you're going to see um, all these layers of history through the architecture on the streets. And then um, walking to the Bashar which is kind of a, coming from the Ottoman Empire, which is now a soul of Sarajevo city, which kind of everybody meets around the, uh, the main cathedral, which is still a meeting point in Sarajevo for generations. So I would say it is a very small but still very beautiful and very interesting capital in, in this part of Europe. You know, when you when you mentioned the name of uh, the market, I was thinking, if Istanbul is like a, a big octopus culturally, one of its arms, the very end of that arm, the last tentacle, might be Sarajevo, historically. Because you have that sense of, this is Ottoman. And it is. Uh, you think of the Turks, and that brings such color and character there. That's the big capital city. Amir, how would you compare Sarajevo to Mostar, because Mostar is a more cute touristic town, much closer to Dubrovnik, therefore easier for most of the tourists to visit. How does Sarajevo and Mostar compare, the, the two most important cities to see in Bosnia? Well, I started with the climate. Sarajevo has more continental climate, and it's in a higher elevation than Mostar, so it's colder, and Mostar is hotter. But architecturally, Mostar, for me, is more, I might be subjective on this, Ottoman-influenced. Mm-hmm. you know, and the culture and architectural. Sarajevo is just bigger because it's the capital. So if you like skiing, you would go to Sarajevo. If mm-hmm. you like uh, summer vacation, you would go to Mostar. If you like good food, you would go to both. But Mostar would be a, a different sort of environment, but it really is a, a city that has a poignancy because mm-hmm. of, uh, it, to me, it's, it's symbolic of the war, but also symbolic of coming together after the war. Yeah, This is an important thing to understand when we go to Mostar. Amir, if somebody is going to Mostar, what sort of context should they understand before they come there? The conflict was not simply neighbor against neighbor, uh, mm-hmm. because neighboring countries were involved too. It wasn't just internal Bosnian conflict. Mm-hmm. It was international in a way. So for people, it's important to understand that people coexisted peacefully together before that war, during the war, and after the war. So it's not that black and white, you know, to mm-hmm. understand it. That's when it comes to war. When it comes to uh, architecture, beauty, that's what makes Mostar special, in, and not only the famous bridge in generally. Most of the people who come there, they say they feel exactly what you said. Tiny little Istanbul is there. 
Mm. And in Sarajevo would be, try to t- imagine, you take a tiny little piece of Budapest, tiny little piece of Istanbul, tiny little piece of Vienna. Mm, yeah. You scramble them together, you get Sarajevo. I love that. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Mm. We're talking with Sanel Marek. We're talking with Ben Curtis. And we're talking with Amir. <laughs> Thank you. And we're talking about Bosnia. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Nancy's calling in from Chesapeake in Virginia. Have you been to Mostar? Yes, I've been to both Mostar and Sarajevo back in 2010. And how would you characterize the two towns? How was your experience? Oh, I loved it. I mean, it was the first time I'd ever been in, in that part of the world. And uh, Mostar was where we went first, and I just love the Starry Most Bridge and all of the architecture and the cobblestone streets, and mm. it just was amazing. It was, I mean, both my husband and I were walking down the street, and we both said, this feels like Disneyland, you know? It just felt like a place, obviously, we'd never been, and just such a world apart from the United States. Nancy, do you remember the kids on the top of the bridge jumping in for coins? I wondered, because every time I'm there, there's these daredevil kids in their swimming trunks, and they're standing on the top of this pointed bridge. It's breathtaking just to see them standing on the tip of this pointed bridge. And if enough people give enough coins, their buddies are running around collecting coins, and they egg you on, and they gain more and more money. And finally, when they reach that uh, enough money, they dive into the river. Sanel, have you seen that? Many times. I mean, it's when you live there, it's hard to miss. You know, that bridge, just to me, I went there as a student, and it, it reminded me of East and West coming together and holding hands. It's this elegant Muslim-style bridge from the East and deep in what I considered Europe. In the war, it was just pummeled and pummeled and pummeled from um, bombardments from the hillside because it was symbolic of togetherness. And then it just finally took one punch too many and all those beautiful rocks tumbled into that river. And I was in a theater with people from all over former Yugoslavia watching the video of that right there in Mostar. And you could hear the, the gasp when it went down. They had all seen this many times, but to be there with people from all the different groups of Yugoslavia watching that and it finally fell, it was just so sad. Thankfully, it's been rebuilt now, and uh, the kids are jumping off the top again, and it's sort of a celebration. Yeah. And how was your experience yeah, in, uh, in Sarajevo, Nancy? It was great, too. And I don't remember the name of it, but the market area was so interesting. And and one of the things I loved about it, which is obviously very European, was just all the people sitting in cafes outside Mm -hmm. and just how serious their coffee drinking is. (laughs) So now, Nancy was there 10 years ago, you guys. Uh, She's wondering how it is now. How much change would you see, Amir? Nancy described Sarajevo pretty much and Mostar as today. Yeah. So uh, what she saw is, you know, we can see, still see there. However, speaking of changes, I'm not talking about political changes because there are hardly any uh, social changes. There are much more uh, refugees these days in Bosnia, or immigrants and refugees coming from the Middle East on the way to Germany and they stuck in Bosnia. Local government seemed kind of like helpless, you know, in helping them. So if you would go there now, you would see the same thing, you know, people sitting, having coffee, but much more refugees and immigrants sleeping in the parks. One of the things I noticed in Mostar was not in the older part of the city, but in the newer part of the city, there were a lot of buildings that were like one building had been restored since the war and the other one still sat empty with, you know, bullet holes in in it. And I just wondered how much of that has been you know, how much of the renovation has been completed in those parts of 
of Mostar. You're still going to find every now and there a building with a bullet holes, but I would say around 85-90% it's already been fixed. The nice facade has been, you know, pulled back to the building. And those who have left, it's just a problem of ownership. When we get out of Yugoslavia, the ownership didn't sit well with, and it's still kind of in a process who will get to take this properties, and that's the only reason why it stands there. Because the bank is gone, the mortgage yes, is gone, yes, and, yes. Uh, and who's going to invest in the And some of the companies who owned it do not exist anymore. Right. So it's kind of like, what we do with these things? Nancy, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Thank you. Our guides to Bosnia-Herzegovina right now on Travel with Rick Steves are Sanel Maric. He's a teacher and tour guide from Mostar. Amir Telebacirovic, a journalist and tour guide from Sarajevo and Ben Curtis, a tour guide and Balkan history expert whose books include A Traveler's History of Croatia. So now you actually work in an NGO that that helps Bosnia heal, and it it is related to its difficult past and its refugees. Can you uh, briefly explain the work you're uh, doing with this uh, this very good work? First of all, we have been refugees within our own country as a part of uh, ethnic cleansing in the certain areas that we live. So I spent uh, roughly nine years uh, outside of my hometown just 40 kilometers away, but I couldn't come back because my house and, you know, everything that we had was given to some other people to live. And it was a very long struggle to get it back. And when you come back to your hometown, you were an outsider. You're no longer welcome. So we struggled with these things. And we were very young. We were students at a time when we were doing these things. And we wanted to do some change. So we start organizing and we found uh, several NGOs. And we are trying to bridge these things. And it's not easy in most of the times because... When you start to do these things uh, after the war, when the wounds are still fresh, uh, then you're not accepted by both sides. But um, I think we've done a very good job, especially dealing with youngsters, providing programs. So we have volunteers from all around the Europe and world coming to work with us, work with kids, and trying to provide them uh, just to give them an example that world is a little bit more brighter and better than what they saw. And it's not just black and white. It's mm-hmm. like all these beautiful colors. Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea is, since we cannot take them to the world, let's bring world to them. And what is the name of the organization? That you so work? the ar- organization is named Orhidea, or the Orchid, by the flower, and the other one is called uh, Association Iskra, like a spark. So the Orchid and the Spark. The Spark, Iskra. yeah. Good Iskra. luck with that work. It sounds Thank like you. very important work. And this has been such an interesting conversation. I want to just wrap things up with each of you. Uh, you're all guides. When you take your American visitors through Bosnia, I'd like you to share a fun highlight of the experience when you have the privilege and the responsibility of taking a, a group of Americans through Bosnia. Ben, can we start with you? Well, one of the things I absolutely love about Bosnia is that it's not slick. There's hardly anywhere that's like super polished and, you know, gleaming, amazing, like, you know, Swiss efficiency or something like that. But to me, that's charming. It's rustic in the best sense. So I'll just tell one story uh, of what I love about kind of Bosnian rustic travel. So a few years ago, I was visiting a friend in Sarajevo. We went hiking in the mountains, which I encourage anyone who goes to Sarajevo to spend at least one day, get up to the mountains. We came to this kind of little restaurant up in some tiny village and, you know, said, hey, are you open? Said, well, not really, but for you, we'll open. And so we sat there. They made these incredible savory pies stuffed with spinach and cheese. They had yogurt from their own cows. You drink it with as you're eating the pie. And you sit there for an hour in an incredible mountain landscape, eat this incredible homegrown organic food, and life slows down, and it's beautiful, and you don't need to rush, 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 and you don't need to you know, worry about ticking off a list of sites. You just soak up the ambiance of a beautiful country with uh, a really like relaxed and amazing culture, and that kind of just slowing down to appreciate 
this other side that is rustic, that is authentic. That's something that I wish everybody could go and see in Bosnia. Wow. Ben, hearing you say that, I just think so many of us spend our lifetime going back to Salzburg and Venice and Rotenburg and Paris, and those are all great. But you could go to Bosnia. You don't need to be a hero. You don't need to be a scholar. You don't need to be a risk taker. Mm -hmm. Perfectly safe, and you'll have that kind of unpolished diamond in the rough kind of cultural experience. Exactly. It's easy for Americans. It is totally safe. There's nothing to worry about. And one thing I always tell people is, I mean, I know, Rick, that kind of travel as a political act is important to you and ethical tourism is, is important to you. Bringing your tourism dollars to Bosnia is really important because the economy is not great there. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of mom and pop businesses and mm-hmm. your dollars go into families' pockets. Beautiful. Thank you. Sanel, what's a, a gratifying experience that you have when you take your visitors to your home country? Seeing the notion with the group when they realize, first of all, how blessed they are and uh, seeing what war does to people, what war does to country. I expose them to all this. I take my groups to visit my NGO, to sit with these kids, to to talk, and they can see uh, how much can be accomplished with little. So now that is an eloquent summary of the value of travel in a reality setting. Bosnia is reality and it's welcoming. I would think with an experience in Bosnia like you can share with your visitors, you wonder, do the people who send us so readily to war understand what war is? You can think, do the people that, are, that never leave their country understand how blessed they are to have stability and affluence? Mm-hmm. And do people realize how much we can make a difference when we roll up our sleeves and help out? Those are three fundamental kinds of enlightenment you get when you travel, and if you stay home, you can never have it. Exactly. Thank you. Amir, what's a, a bit of gratification you get from taking American visitors around Bosnia? What's a highlight for you as a guide? There's something that you realize, similar to what you just said some minutes earlier, when you said tentacles from Istanbul to Bosnia. When Bosnia was a part of the vast Ottoman Empire from Istanbul, it was considered to be the most western peak of the vast empire. Later, when it became part of the Habsburg Empire from the Vienna, it was considered to be the most eastern peak of the vast empire. That's one thing that explains, yeah. you know, like this blend of different cultures and civilization. Other thing is food, something that Bosnia was known in the region and now we're more international. That's and great. So that's one of the things that Bosnia is known. Uh, you asked me about positive side. That food was always there before, during the conflict and after the, and it still is. Tell me in, in, uh, in Bosnian language, your, the three dishes I should eat when I come to okay, Sarajevo. Okay, uh, cevapi, pite, or bulek, as somebody people say or uh, cakes, like everybody knows baklava, that's international, yeah. but there's something local. Uh, these are the top, these are like holy trinity, bulek, chavapcici, and uh, pita in general. Pita is just Bosnian version for pie, but you need to go under to discover there is a mountain of good food over there. And it's in a land where the tentacles of the Habsburg octopus from Vienna reach the tentacles of the Ottoman octopus. And they embrace each other. From Istanbul. And they come together there, and it's a tasty experience. This is Travel with Rick Steves. It's been so great to have all of you helping us out. Sanel Marek, Ben Curtis, and Amir (laughs) Talibacilovic. Happy travels. Thank you. And uh, I'm heading over to Bosnia as soon as I get a chance. Thank you, guys. Thank Thank you. you, You're welcome. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wilner, and Kazmura Hall. We get website support from America Kipnikone, but our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We had studio help this week from WUSF Tampa. You'll find links to our guests in the notes for each week's show. You can also listen again in the show archives and comment on what you hear at ricksteves.com slash radio. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe, researching and writing guidebooks. 
His now classic Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. And Europe 101 is a full-color guide that makes Europe's history and art come alive. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks, visit our travel store. It's behind the Shop Online tab at ricksteves.com.